This is the Deep in the Weeds Christmas special with Danny Vallon, Shantae Whale, John Sussman and Anthony Huckstep. When we started Deep in the Weeds, we had no idea that it would become a network with six shows. Um, Dirty Linen, uh, Over a Glass, Fishtails, The Producers, The Crackling, and of course Deep in the Weeds. But the really exciting thing is we've got everyone in the same room at the same time. How is everyone? They said it would never happen. <laughs> uh, it's so exciting. It's incredible to be here, Huck. Thanks for, yeah. I should introduce everyone. Yeah. Danny Vallon. Hi. Shantae Whale. Hi. John Sussman. Hi. Rob Locke. He doesn't Silence. talk. <laughs> he does exist. Yeah. Uh, it's been a pretty crazy period of time. Um, but, you know, it looks like society's opening up. We're all going to about to celebrate Christmas. And a new year that's hopefully brings something a bit more exciting than the last two years. Um, how's everyone feeling? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. I think it's time for change. It's time for looking forward and seeing how we can change what we've been doing in the past and, and making something new and something great. So I think having our expectations high and, and remembering uh, the important things is how we should be looking towards next year. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's really well said. I think it would be a shame to let two years of upheaval go to waste and for us to just try to get back to normal. I think it's really about going forwards and thinking about what we've learned, what we've lost, but also what we've gained, which is actually quite a lot. Yeah, I think it's really exciting. I think there's you know sort of a complete reframing that's occurred, both in terms of you know many people turning their stoves on for the first time in ever and cooking at home and possibly realising and or you know, understanding the skills that are being presented to them on a plate in a restaurant. And of course, with the reopening of the restaurants, I think that's also shown you know, this complete reimagination of, of what people are looking for and how exciting it is to go out. So I think there's two elements to it. There's one is that it's put a bit of a flame to the touch paper of retail, certainly in the seafood category, mm. um, which I've never seen in 30 odd years before. Um, and secondly, it's actually, I think, really raised the awareness and expectation for the quality of what gets presented on a plate in a restaurant. I think the interesting thing from a personal perspective is seeing the world through a new lens. When COVID happened, it it affected our family financially and I'd sort of lost all my work. And this whole network may never have happened if it weren't for COVID. And there's that, you know, looking at the world differently, keeping your eyes open, trying new things. And some pretty incredible things have, have emerged. And certainly my life and my family's life is on a different trajectory to what it was. And that would never have happened if it wasn't for the adversity. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people have um, seen the opportunity to yeah draw whatever kind of line they might not have ever have imagined drawing, but may have wanted to in their wildest dreams. I think there's been a lot of courage that people have found. And I think a lot of people have been tumbled into situations that perhaps, you know, were not of their choosing, but they've really managed to find the good things that are in there, the strength in there, the creativity and also a lot of heart and a lot of community, a lot of integrity, just a lot of really fantastic human qualities that people have been, I guess, you know, pushed to find within themselves and, you know, found that 
they're full of them. So, yeah, it's, it's been really heartening in that regard. The hospitality sector has changed a lot and you all have different touch points in it, like Danny, journalist, critic, Shantae, professional, Sussman, a supplier. Like, how have you seen it change and does it feel different, the industry? Obviously, it's been dramatically impacted, but is it different, John, your job? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I think the, particularly with reopening, food service has taken on um, a slightly different world, if you will. I mean, kitchens have got reduced number of staff in them. Uh, floors have got reduced number of staff on them. Um, the, I guess the pressure on business has been sort of like compounded by, you know, sort of the, the dwell between you know, cash register rings. And so we've seen menus being reduced you know, it's more about greatest hits and memories than it is about experimentation or something too avant-garde. Something nice about that, actually. Well, I, I was about to say, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you know, there's been much more the, you know, seeking integrity and quality than there is just in new because it's new. Um, I've found that really exciting. I've found it really encouraging. I've found restaurateurs and chefs to be way more look way more um, in tune with supply than they were previously, to be really frank. And I think that's not a bad thing, you know. I think um, I'm definitely seeing, I mean, it's great to be back on a restaurant floor and it's the guests are absolutely loving it. They, I think they've understood a little bit more about what it's like to be looked after because they've been doing that for themselves. So to, to come in a restaurant and be asking, can you just choose something for me? What should I eat? What should I drink? And that's wonderful as a song because you're thinking, man, I've just got so much I'm excited about and I can't wait to share it. And I think actually the words came out of my mouth the other day when someone said, what should I do? And I said, can I just please look after you? Because I haven't looked after someone for so long on a restaurant floor and they were like absolutely no problem but at the same time I think um, a different maybe a slightly altered approach to my job in terms of I've always cared about my team but I'm also just checking in it's gone from one to a thousand overnight from being in lockdown not doing a whole lot to being absolutely run off our feet so my main concern right now is making sure that the the culture and the community they're working in is pleasant and achievable despite the fact we're all at the busiest time of the year. And so I think that that's, um, that's always been a main concern of mine, but even more so is it now because we want to make sure that we are looking after one another. Can I just say there, Huck, to follow Shante, is like, you know, I've, I've felt obliged to do as much eating and drinking as I possibly can in the last <laughs> month um, by virtue of supporting my clients, of course. But um, I have found that exact point, actually. I think that I've never seen, particularly in Sydney, I've never seen such welcoming and genuine service across the board. Yeah, no, honestly, I think it's been it's been quite amazing. And it's not just the good shops, you know, that's across the board. There's, you know, plenty of humble suburban restaurants that are just kicking the doors down in terms of the quality of the service as well as the food. I think it's so exciting. And the patronage too. Hopefully we continue to see that, but at the moment people are being incredibly gracious. I think knowing that hospitality is at a point where we, we don't have a lot of staff and finding a lot of the guests are incredibly gracious for what you do and really that extra moment of turning to look you in the eye when you put a piece of cutlery down, those simple things that make you really feel seen and feel appreciated just makes that um, environment so nice to work in. Danny, you've changed so much in this time and have also been talking to people and 
writing about the change in culture and the issues in the industry. Like, how much have you changed in the last two years along with the industry? Yeah, who even am I? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I've become a bit braver. I don't think I've changed at my core. You know, I still it's still for me all about telling people stories. It's about elevating voices. It's about, um, yeah, trying to get a little bit beneath the surface and also I think to honour the project of restaurants as they – they're just these incredible machines that I think I've grown to appreciate more and more through this period with, you know, I, you know, the energy it takes to reopen. Restaurants in Melbourne have reopened six times. Like, that is draining, right? So I think for me, I guess as a critic, I suppose I've always, you know, you have to maintain a bit of a distance. But I think, you know, part of the, my questioning has been, well, what is food media for? Like, what is it about? What is actually the point of being, you know, anonymous? Uh, what what changes if you are more trying to stand beside a restaurant as they deliver whatever it is they try to deliver? So I think that's something I'm still working through. But I think... Um, I think... I mean, media is so up for grabs. I mean, it's the reason that we're all here in this room, Huck. It's like, you know, we know that um, media generally and food media has been through a massive series of upheavals and that's there's surely more to come. But it's still so... Well, we've never seen it be more necessary to tell the stories of the hospitality industry. We're all in this room because we love doing it. What next? You know, what else can we do? What other, what other things can we do with the formats available to us to create those webs of empathy that allow people on both sides of the dining experience to thrive. Can I ask you a question here, Huck? I mean, you know, when you guys sat about to develop weeds, what was the thread? What was the essence? What was the core of the idea? Because from where I sit, one out, one back, to Danny's point, you know, food media has changed dramatically in a very short time. I mean, we'd seen it going on the trajectory where it was all about the personalities, often of the journalists, to be you know, brutally honest. What you guys have developed is just such a different platform. I mean, how did that come about? Well, uh, a chef, well-known chef and a good friend of mine, Jared Ingersoll, he came and visited us recently and he said to me, what he hears in Deep in the Weeds is what I've talked about for the last 20 years of what I've wanted to do in, in food media but haven't had the platform to do it. And to, that was surprising to me because Rob and I, we just sort of started this to sort of work out what the hell was going on because the pandemic landed and we were just like, let's record what's going on because we don't know what's going on. And what, what ended up happening was we just ended up telling the stories of people's lives. And that deeper dive is something that I've always been interested in. And it just happened to be an opportunity because I had no job and a lot of time <laughs> to to take that plunge, you know, and, and have those discussions that I want to have and I know other people want to have. And it's not for everyone and that's fine. But it's just uh, like I absolutely love it. It's the best thing I've ever done. Um, like because I have no idea what people are going to say half the time. And when you dive into someone's life, you know, you, you all realise that we're just all people trying to trying to get by and trying to move forward and and you know get over hurdles and have successes and you get losses and um yeah it's just been amazing so I, I just think right time right place with an idea to just try and help and give voice and it just yeah and how about you danny i mean you ski on two skis with old media and new media how have how has weeds and dirty linen affected how you approach 
you know, the broadcast mechanism. Well, I love the independence. I mean, I'm, in, I'm a freelancer, so I guess I do have a certain amount of independence with everything that I choose to do. Uh, but I think the format of the podcast feels so fresh and so open. And I guess, you know, the technology is such a good friend in that regard. Like we can talk to anyone anywhere in the world, you know, Wi-Fi or 4G <laughs> permitting Just can get a little bit glitchy, but we can try to chat to anyone in the world. And I think that immediacy and the unfiltered nature of, you know, most of what we do is so thrilling uh, I just love it you know I've I've loved conversations with people who feel like they haven't been given a voice they haven't been given that platform before so I think certainly for you know for someone like me who's had the privilege of being able to communicate with people off a pretty large platform for a while to be able to offer that to others I mean I feel like it's a privilege for me to speak to them, but you know that that for, to allow other voices. And I'm especially thinking of people who've come here on temporary work visas. Um, I think that's possibly the most important thing that I've done. Do you know what I think is really special about the podcast sort of format is that it's it, it's not as polished. You don't have to. It's okay to. Um and R and it's okay to you know like food media has become so photoshopped and everything has to be yeah sanitized and be so perfect and there's something quite beautiful in just being who you are and being okay with it even as hosts like I don't listen back to it because you know, sometimes it's a bit brutal but um, but there's something actually quite magical about that and I think that's why people connect with it as well because it's real I, th- I think on that point that for so long people weren't quite sure you know, restaurants and and what happens in them is a little bit like a theatre and there's breaking down that third wall and people love the theatre and and it's beautiful and exotic and magical and seeing the nitty gritty behind it was always kind of like, some people don't want to see that, but the wonderful late Anthony Bourdain, you know, he said exactly how it is and I actually think that the dirty and the nitty gritty and, you know, all the ups and downs makes it even more magical because you do end up putting on this theatre production where all the workings are coming together. So even though I think a lot of people were worried about saying what they maybe shouldn't say about the restaurant industry, now that we see it for what it is, it's a miracle that it even exists, you know, and that we do have such incredible talent in in this country. What's been the highlight of the last year for you guys? I mean, going, like opening and going back to restaurants Every single time that's happened, I have loved it. So I think there's always been that trepidation, like who I am, who am I if I'm not in stretchy pants? Um, you know, is it safe? Uh, are they checking in properly? Like all those kind of those COVID nervous uh, feelings are there, but there's also every time and probably more each time an appreciation for just like how lucky I am to be able to walk through a restaurant and there are people there who want to look after me and, you know, make me happier when I leave than I was when I went in. Like that is something I've I've always loved. I'm such a restaurant fan, but I've just turned into such a super fan through this period. She's <laughs> <laughs> a groupie. Yeah, fully. <laughs> I, I, look, I think for me it's been the fact that, you know, the, the recognition of how skillful chefs and floor staff are that has been you know sort of foisted on people by having to entertain and cook at home through the whole process I think you know I just speak to chums that have you know often as I said before never turned their their hob on the kitchen on 
and um, and suddenly they've gone, shit, that simple piece of grilled fish at Rockpool is really delicious because that guy knows how to cook it mm. and recognise what the skill that underlies that perfection is. And I think that that's kind of been that sort of flame to the touch paper of appreciation that we hadn't seen for a long time. Um, and I, I really think that, you know, sort of being out, have someone that selects a perfect bottle of wine for dinner is something that you can't generally do stumbling through your cellar at home or, or trying to work out what's on the shelves at Dan's or whatever, you know. It's just it, and, and so I think this, it's in a bizarre and almost macabre way that sort of home, sort of that forced home entertaining has created this sort of greater level of awareness and understanding for what actually happens in a restaurant. And forced entertaining with you and your partner or someone in your bubble, not even your good friends. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I think um, for me, it's been that I've had the time. I mean, hospitality is a bit like a freight train and I've had the time to be at home in my home with my garden and my dog. And then I wanted desperately to come back. That was something that I just didn't know how that would affect me. I wouldn't have never had that time to just do something else. And I yet throughout it all, I missed my family. I missed, you know, my, my hospo family, I missed um, talking to winemakers, talking to the even the suppliers that come in and we have a quick chat, it's 15 minutes, it's like bam, 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 quick drink this, pour this, what do you think about this, where are we at? You know, some, of, some people like Jane Tyrrell will come in, she's like, I know you've only got five seconds, this is how we do things and she knows exactly how I operate. So I think that it's that I've had the time away, I've really enjoyed that, but I desperately want to be back because it's an industry I really do love and for a lot of reasons I perhaps didn't realise until I took that time away. Can I ask, did, did during that time, did you reflect on, say, your wine lists and, and think about them differently from how you would on a day-to-day? I think I thought about lists and how that supported Australia more. I thought about how am I supporting our industry a little bit more. Um, I know that you know when you come back, there's a certain amount of buying power that you have and you're working with what you got, but I definitely thought about how am I supporting my whole industry from a local perspective but also as an Australian perspective how how am I going to keep that afloat in and how can we make that better in times ahead when something like this again happens yeah I went through um an interesting journey with wine like just as a wine fan uh where we were just off the back of the bushfires of course when the pandemic hit and it was all about empty esky and supporting local and I reckon for the first year of the pandemic I was only drinking Australian but then as we went into this year I was really missing travel so I started <laughs> drinking international wines Tonight, and I was we're like in Germany. take me to France guys <laughs> like yeah I want to go to Italy so yeah it's been a really interesting balance I guess of um, yeah support nostalgia and I suppose you know wine importers are people too right <laughs> like we, want, we love them as well uh, one of the real highlights for me this year was the fact that Rob and I realized that we were at a level with the weeds and dirty linen and the crackling to actually branch out with more shows and the success of those gave us the opportunity to roll the dice with some others that have been really successful since with you know for me it's really weird but like fish tales over a glass amazing brilliant podcasts when we launched the producers i actually felt quite emotional about it it's always been a real um important thing to me um and i've had columns about producers before and i've always felt that they're the real heroes 
And when we launched that, I actually felt quite emotional about it. And I remember talking to my wife about it, saying, "These guys just don't have a voice." And when it, when 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 we record with them, I just love it. It's so good. They're just so down to earth. They've got so much to say. And it's just, it's just unreal, you know? We'd be nothing without them. Yeah. And also, on a personal note, I love that we're sharing that podcast. Yes, I know. <laughs> and we've never been in the room together, though. No, of course it. not. <laughs> um, what I also like is that you guys have all got fluffy mics, and I've got, I've got an old school mic. It feels like I'm back at the Wenty Hotel hanging off the rafters, singing death metal to a... To a <laughs> Go on um, then. Yeah. I don't know if this is if this is the right time to bring this up, Huck. But I was in a metal band as well. Yes, I did hear that Were rumor. You? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was in a few really great bands. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the metal one, Suck Face, yeah. um, only needed to play one gig to yeah, show yeah. the world what was what. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, it was really good. Well, that's a better name. We had well, I had a few bands, but the the main one that we kind of recorded with and stuff was called Genocide, which I think Suck Face is a better, a better name. <laughs> same, same. Yeah. Well, we definitely need to get both of you across to Wolf's Shed in Port Lincoln <laughs> on a Wednesday night. <laughs> well, um, Christmas is coming soon. Does anyone, it's a big time for hospitality to really sort of get the wheels in motion and kick into the new year. Uh, does anyone have any strange, funny, interesting Christmas stories with food? <laughs> that is such a big question. So, I mean, I'll just explain a little bit about the Jewish Christmas. Yeah, Because, um, yeah, I'm Jewish, but a lot of Jews love Christmas. And my dad, um, who's not religious at all, um, he just loves the idea of giving presents. So Christmas was always something that we did. And, um, yeah, it wasn't. there was nothing really traditional about it. In fact, we'd often even move the date so that we'd miss the traffic on the roads as we went off camping. Um, so we'd have Christmas a few days before. Um, yeah, jump in the car and head away for a few weeks with our tent piled onto the roof. And we always knew that the holiday began when my dad would take off his red cap that he only wore on holidays and he would scream in the car this is the life <laughs> <laughs> and yeah my dad came here you know as an immigrant not speaking English aged 11 holocaust survivor and there's just a really special victory in him able to being able to take his family on a road trip whenever he wanted well, I can probably give the antithesis of that. <laughs> December 1988, and at that stage, the Flying Squid Brothers, which was our distribu seafood distribution business in Devonshire Street, Surrey Hills in Sydney, opposite the Shakespeare Hotel. <laughs> um, we had a tiny little shop um, that we were doing quite a bit of business out of, and we would have fish on the street and five vans packed full of fish. And it was the uh, 23rd of December, and it was, it was a Friday and we had literally five vans full of fish and someone in the housing commission across the road shot four people dead. And then oh. they were pulling the stiffs out onto the, onto the lawns on Devonshire Street and the police had cordoned off the whole block and I was begging the sergeant to let us get five vans of fish out before they started the inquiry so, so that we could actually service the restaurants in the city. Far out. Wow. Did you get them out? We did. <laughs> the power of a prawn sandwich, it's amazing. <laughs> I, 
this isn't a, a, a food story, but it's it's a first story, a first for me. And um, I was working in the UK um, at a, I don't know, a fancy steakhouse, I guess it was. You know, it's kind of like a black stump with penny loafers and no socks. It was just a sort of a, a rung above the average sort of steakhouse. And I put my hand up to work on Christmas Day, which I'd done a lot through uni and stuff like that in restaurants and loved cooking and working on Christmas Day because it's just a special time in restaurants. And um, But as a result, I got Christmas Eve off. But um, I went on the, an almighty bender the day bef- the night before Christmas Eve and, you know, till, till the sun came up sort of thing. And I got up the next day and it was one of those benders where you can't really do much other than make it to the lounge and find something to eat and drink and probably nap. And um, my brother was also working at the restaurant at the same time and he, he came home in the afternoon and sort of walked in and said, it's pretty crazy out there, isn't it? And I was like yeah it's crazy crazy world bro (laughs) and he goes have you left the house today do you know what's going on out there and i went i don't know what are you talking about and i got up and walked outside and it and it was about that i don't know a couple of inches of snow on everything. Oh my goodness! <laughs> right? Wow! And I've never, I'd never seen snow in my life. So every holiday that I ever had was always chasing the sun. And I was standing there, and we, we our uh, um, place that we lived, the balcony looked over this tiny little village called Hook in um, near Basingstoke in the UK. And basically, there's a pub across the road, a church, and a Seven Eleven, and kind of not much else. But everything had Christmas lights on it and snow, like. And I was just like going, "Oh my god!" <laughs> and it was just like the most Christmassy movie feeling ever. <laughs> like I it was love just it. absolutely <laughs> mate. I didn't I was oblivious to the fact it'd been snowing for seven hours or something. Well, you came out when it got good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think I uh, did one in um uh, when I was living in Canada, same kind of thing. I had never experienced a snowy Christmas and I was living in Vancouver and they actually closed a restaurant, which I think is one of the nicest things a hospitality venue can ever do is to close on Christmas and let everybody have their, their Christmas time. So, um, uh, but as an expat, I was, you know, had no family there and ended up going with a bunch of the restaurant kids and went over to someone's house and I just didn't know what I was in for. So it was, you know, four different chefs uh, making their own cuisine of their own kind of family. So we had like a Vietnamese chef and then real traditional Canadian chef. I think we had a Tadakan at the time, which was horrendous to watch <laughs> being put together. Um, and the sommelier, a couple of sommeliers were there and I was just a waiter at the time. And, you know, the sommeliers were using crazy little decanting devices and slushing things around. I remember just sitting back being like, what is this? But it was just the most beautiful, welcoming, fun dinner where there was food everywhere. And we sat on the ground eating like the most ridiculous food. And I mean, it was a hospital environment. I think some mushrooms came out towards the end. Of course, I didn't take part. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, that was the rest of the Christmas. But uh, yeah, it was a, a pretty great one. And like you said, just snow falling. And I wore heels and a dress and I was walking home in the snow and wondering why my legs hurt so much. But that was because the, the skin had frozen on the outside. Oh my gosh. <laughs> when it comes to Christmas, I sort of cook the same thing every year and I'm contemplating move shifting away from that but it's also things that I don't necessarily cook in abundance altogether at any other time of the year so I'm I'm sort of a bit torn but do do you guys sort of go to signatures at Christmas or 
Uh, I mean, I always do a ham because when I just wouldn't do a ham any other time. So I just love it. Like order my ham ahead, just make sure it's amazing. Make a really great, I usually make a peach and mango chutney, like make a whole bunch of jars and give it away. That's like a, you know, standard present to give away. I do love giving away edible gifts at Christmas. Uh, so if I get organized enough, yeah, it'll be lots of chutney. Um, yeah, that's the that's my mainstay. There's lots of other things that drift in and out, but there's always got to be a ham. Well, the stone fruit thing is interesting because I always do a peach pistachio mint sort of salad going on because I prefer peaches with um, porchetta to applesauce. I just think it's a much nicer sort of um, accompaniment. Yeah. Um, and so that's a salad. So that sort of combination with some fish and prawns is always something that I go to. And now, I've, now I'm thinking I should because it's so good. Um, so, so what do you do? Well, I mean, look, it's the life of a fishmonger, I suppose. It's like the the mad rush for prawns and lobsters and oysters is always something that does my head in, to be honest. And so, by the time it gets to Christmas, um, it it becomes one of those things of like, do I really need to eat these things? And I mean, everyone, the whole family expects them, of course, as everyone expects, you know, prawns, lobsters, and oysters at Christmas time. But surprisingly, it's a great time for fish. A lot of fishermen are getting in their last catch before they might take two or three weeks off in, in January. And so the bar, the fish bargains of the year in premium Australian fish are Christmas week. So I'm gonna, I tell my family, hey, listen, guys, I'm sorry. I don't know whether it's going to be a blue eye. I don't know whether it's going to be a harpooker. I don't know whether it's going to be flounder or King George Whiting. But that's what we're going to be eating on Christmas Day because you know, no one else is buying this stuff. They're all crazily you know, racing after the oysters, prawns and lobsters. So yeah, that's what I go for, and it's and it's you know, and it's really delicious. <laughs> I love a good whiting fillet. I, any any day that it brings week. a tear to my eye. Actually, oh my yeah. goodness, delicious. <laughs> um, I, I tend to try something different, something I've made before, but something different each year because they are few and far between uh, Christmases at home. Um, but usually something that I know my family's going to enjoy. Um, to be honest, I'm normally prioritising what I'm going to drink uh, rather than what necessarily they're going to eat because it's a time when I really save those special bottles for uh, my family. You know, things I've put away for a long time that I'm like, when my family's gathered around and we're all together, we're going to drink this special bottle. So um, I actually thought this year of making something really nostalgic that my grandmother used to make. Since her passing, I thought, I'm going to make that again. And it's quite disgusting. Wow. It's, <laughs> no, it's, it's not a good thing. Um, it's um, She used to do this dessert that I used to just froth over as a kid and it was um, tinned mixed fruits with um, sour cream and marshmallows, Paschal marshmallows, cut up in between it. I don't know why, but as a kid, I loved it. And it's quite gross. It came about in the, like, the 90s maybe. Um, but I thought, I, I still can taste it. And I was thinking, I'm going to have to make it just to see if it's really that disgusting or if it was really quite nice. I met someone the other night who was talking about a similar nostalgic and gross uh, dessert that involved jelly and fruit and a mould and yeah it could be a little <laughs> bit up your alley Shantae. I mean I was inspired the other day with the, the chat that you had with the turkey girl um, and it was was it was you know really interesting but I, my only ever attempts at turkey have been tragedy absolute tragedy I'm keen to give it a go because she was pretty pretty sort of adamant that you just need some skills which is true I do so um, <laughs> <laughs> well and the point that she made though is is that everyone waits till Christmas to cook turkey and so they don't have the practice and understanding and that makes complete sense yeah like the better you know a protein 
Yeah. There's or, nothing, or anything. Nothing like turning up at a relative's with the frozen turkey sitting in the sink at one, <laughs> one o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> What about drinking? Like, what, what sort of tips um, are there? What should people be drinking this summer and Christmas? Whatever you really want to be drinking, I suppose. At the end of the day, if you want to drink a big Cabernet with your oysters, go for it. I mean, it's your <laughs> Christmas, but um, I don't know. I, I, I tend to like a, a really n- nice gin and tonic, and then I like to have that kind of longer lunchtime. So I, I tend to try and get people all the way through it, whether it be my mother who only has a couple of glasses or grandma who only has a sherry and dry. So I try to just have a nice few bottles, um, maybe start with something like Eric Bordelais Poir Cider, which is from, you know, 300-year-old pear trees. It's just really light in alcohol and really refreshing and, and then just move into some, some nice bottles. But, um, I mean, I have to say, a gin and tonic is something I, I can drink anytime. So, like, the Christmas present opening kind of element uh, is always nice with some finger lime dropped in there, like boba tea, yummo. What about you guys? Well, I don't know. I have to have champagne. So, yeah, and then I don't really mind what happens next. Well, <laughs> well the problem with that is, like, we're the same and you have it in the morning as you're kind of prepping and stuff and then... Yeah, it's no wonder everyone has a nap at like three o'clock. Yeah. Well, that's why I, I stay on the light beers until the cricket's over so, <laughs> so that I can take the wickets of those that are drunk. No. <laughs> it's the only time in the year that I get a wicket. So, so. Well, what, what should people be eating, you think, this summer? Is there, is there anything that sort of stood out in the last year that, that you think people should try their hand at? Well, I definitely think that we've seen this amazing... I don't know whether it's a renaissance or an awakening of awareness for oysters, but, you know, like... In, in my early days, you know, the difference between oysters was whether they were Kilpatrick or Mornay. <laughs> you know, now there's, you know, sort of there's species, there's region, there's you know, sub-region, there's grower. Um, and, of course, everyone has to learn the social skill of being able to shuck an oyster. It's, it's very akin to being able to take the cork out of a bottle of champagne, in my view. It's, it's a must. And I'm the only one in, in my family, an extended family, that can do it. So when there's a lot of people there... It's, a lot of it's call a, for your skills. That's right. Yeah, how can you, you can't even pick up a glass and have a sip when you're busy with the oysters? Oh, well, there's... You there know, you there's, go. Now, uh, my goodness. A girl with an oyster knife in her, in her purse. You never know when you're going to need it. That is so... I'm Like, you've <laughs> completely changed in, in my, my so eyes. Good. But the, there's a fascinating history... But, not between both of you, but with, <laughs> with your ancestry. Shante, your world is all wine... But going back to your grandparents. Wow. He was an oyster farmer, um, yeah, a long time ago. And so I actually brought uh, this oyster shuck up that my grandfather used to make. He, he was like absolutely, you know, so particular about his shuckers that he used to use. So I thought I'd bring it and show you. <laughs> this is absolutely amazing. I'd, I'd argue that it, it is the most defined and fine oyster knife that I've ever seen in my life. It's extraordinary. Wow. It is, it is, the blade is honed specifically for easy access on the oyster. It's got an ergonomic handle that, that can be, you know, that's a work of art. This episode Shut is brought it, to you by <laughs> the oyster shucker. That is absolutely amazing. But Sasa, you've got to say, like, Shante's got it in her bag with a cork on the tip. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I did catch the train, so I did not is, want to be told I was uh, <laughs> that is, that's That's fantastic. Packing. That is absolutely brilliant. Your granddad was an oyster farmer and Mr. Fish over here. My grandfather was a vigneron in the Barossa Valley. Ah, so, yeah. Swapsies. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> I don't have those talents, but uh, that's amazing. 
we will have so much to chat about over dinner. But I'm sorry, I don't have any vines in my back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> no gumboot clones, not that, damn it. not that you should pull out anyway. <laughs> I reckon back to what people should be cooking, Huck. I reckon it's it's got to be about produce. And when you think about summer in Australia, it's just like, you know, what has just soaked up the sunshine? I just, I'm so into making dishes with one vegetable at the moment. So I just think I did a barbecue the other night and it was just like, all different types of tomatoes some were just fresh and chopped really randomly and some were just blistered in a pan and they were all just tumbled together just with olive oil and salt just get different colours and textures and different bursts of sweetness um you know, another was just like some cucumber just cut up with some black sesame seeds and some salt and a little drizzle of olive oil. And that's on another plate. And then just like some cos lettuce just like chopped into wedges and chucked on the barbecue. It's just all about just one thing at a time. And I think it's that simplicity that, you know, we've been talking about as well with that you see in menus. It's like just really letting produce speak and just giving it a really gentle touch, but just, yeah, just food that's expressive. Well, that's actually a really awesome trait that we've been seeing in restaurants is that focus on an ingredient and keeping things simple. You know, not every restaurant, but that, that has crept into sort of the common thought process in, in chefing and, and, and restaurants is to hero a produce, get the best produce you can and do as little to it as possible to let it sort of shine. Yeah. And, you know, especially as a, as a restaurant critic as well, they, but in my past life, people would think that I wanted smears, foams and skid marks on a Ferris wheel on the plate. But Didn't you? Well, I used to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in actual fact, when you get a, a, a piece of fish that's beautifully cooked and there's not much else on the plate, it's actually the most exquisite eating experience you can have. Yeah. Uh, I'll take a little chefy flourish, so it's something that I wouldn't nice or couldn't do at home. Yeah. But yeah, I agree with you. It's just like, you know, it's just that idea of chefs shepherding produce to magnificence rather than just like, you know, deconstructing it and turning it into five different things. Well, and I think that's a message that for the home cooks is that when you are cooking for lots of people, you feel like you have to go out of your boundaries and do some sort of creation and go over the top and and you know, do something that you perhaps you're not familiar doing. But the better thing to actually is show some restraint, just get something good and just, just care about the cookery and, yeah. you know, it, and it'll, it'll be a great meal. Get a repertoire and stick to it yeah. you know, and change the produce up. I was going to say in terms of like what people should be cooking is that it's really important that people are maybe if you're not working crazy around the clock at the hours, take the time to enjoy the process of shopping so that you don't not necessarily going to one one area where you get everything go to a different baker and get the best bread from a baker and then make the trip somewhere else because actually I think part of the process of getting ready for Christmas is that little buzz in the air where you've got your your cheesemonger or your fishmonger and you go and you go no I'm gonna and so enjoy that process because it's in the preparation is sometimes the best part of the festivities you've got the Christmas music blaring at you from every single store that you go into (laughs) but you can be selective and then at the end of the day you go I've just got this beautiful array of great produce and I just need to sit down and enjoy it yeah I love that too the last two years has sort of shaken the foundations of a lot of things and made us, a lot of us look through a different lens and the way we want to live our lives. Um, and there's some, been some real positives to come out of it. How are you guys feeling about um, looking forward and, wh- and what, what might emerge from a positive sort of perspective in the next year or so? Well, it's got to be about looking after people and valuing community, doesn't it? And I mean, that just threads through everything from you think about like environment, 
producers, supply chains, like all those people that put the, this magic together. It's just about, I guess, which, wherever anybody is on that, you know, whichever step of the supply chain you're on, I'm on the eating part. Um, it's just, I guess, knowing the true value of it or, or believing if someone tells you that this is the value, then believing them and just, yeah, bringing, bringing your side of the bargain to the table. Very much so. I think I've moved to a tiny town straight out of the city where I had everything at my fingertips to a really small town. But um, over the time, I've started to get to know my neighbours in the area, the couple, I think there's only one or two restaurants, but the people behind that, you know, and spending my money with them where I could, you know, at the end of the day, did I need fresh flowers in my house every day? No, but did it bring me joy? Did it help them? then absolutely it was worth every penny. And then popping it on the Facebook group saying, look how wonderful these flowers are. So I think, yeah, looking after one another is really at the core of, I think, where 22 should be. And if we can do that in all of our separate little spaces, then we've got a good thing going on. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think it's about relationships. I think it's, it's you know, wherever, to, to Danny's point along the supply chain, it's about relationships. You know, I'm hoping that we see the end of, well, what's your price on the tuna today? Um, to, hey, listen, what do you think about the tuna today? Or can you get me some good tuna today? I think, you know, we lost a lot of the relationship process, I think, over probably the last 10 years, I, I certainly saw. And I think that the, the, you know, the return to building and managing and maintaining really good relationships is, is what I'm hoping for you know, from here on. Well, certainly from a food perspective, the, there is the opportunity for a new dawn of hospitality and the way that um, the culture within the industry and opportunities. There's many challenges ahead with staffing and all sorts of stuff like that. But it also brings opportunities to change the things that weren't working and to change, you know, all of our approach. Whether whether you're a diner with a greater understanding, or whether you're in the industry and actually care about your staff and create a, a career path for them and and um, and make it something that people want to be in, you know and because um, it's bloody magic industry. Whether whether you um, you're on a boat or whether you're you know enjoying a nice glass of wine in a good restaurant or not everything in between, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, and you know all of you are amazing. All award winners. Um, John, young waiter of the year a few moons ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've still got the tray to prove it. Huh? Don't you worry about that. But um, both both Danny and Shante with incredible um, recognition recently. What, what sort of awards have been in question? What sort of impact did those sort of awards have on you? Oh, I'm not a really an awardsy kind of person. <laughs> um, so I think if anything, it just makes me want to. I guess be braver and more courageous and just say or not say whatever I want but just like if I think something should be said or tackled then just do it so yeah maybe just a bit more um yeah firecracker rocket wind beneath my wings is that I don't know just it sounds just like you're going to start singing from suck face yeah <laughs> suck face is all about the wind beneath wings um yeah uh just you know I've always just been about like doing stuff and that's why my career is kind of random and has I wear a lot of different hats but I think it's just yeah just keep doing stuff just keep um looking for amazing stories and I honestly believe everybody's got an amazing story and yeah just just getting getting that stuff out there I think yeah you really said it really well but also 
you know, hospitality is in a funny point at the moment and uh, we really need to make it viable. We need to make hospitality viable because the people are there to do a lot of hard work and we have to make sure that they're recognised. So awards bring great recognition for teamwork and at the end of the day, it is one team, one dream and it takes, as we say, a village to really get there. So I think awards give those people that perhaps aren't at the forefront or the face of that restaurant the recognition that they deserve, that what they're doing really, really matters, and it, and then it, it is paying off. So, um, uh, and you have to be brave, very much so. I think that's important. I've been at Key for ten and a half years now, so I feel that it's, I, it's my responsibility to fight for these guys that don't have a voice yet. And if that means I'm a bit of a whinger about, you know, the conditions or whatever it may be, then so be it. But um, somebody has to fight for these guys and and fight for our industry. Well, I should have said at the top of the show, we are actually in Rockpool Bar and Grill in Sydney. And thanks to Corey Costello for giving us an, a beautiful, quiet space to do this. Um, we are going to um, drop the mic soon and run off and have a bit of a Christmas party ourselves, um, <laughs> which is which is pretty fun. Has anyone got big plans for the coming year? I think just open, open-mindedness. Bring on 2022, you know, bring on in all its guises. And that is the good and the bad and the ugly, because at the end of the day, you know, We'll get through it. We've seen that we can, and uh, with good community spirit and a uh, bit of flexibility, a bit of pivoting, we'll make it work. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, well, nothing can hurt us now. Is, is that tempting fate? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just love what I'm doing. I just want to do more of it. I want to see the industry, uh, you know, thrive. Uh, people to be able to heal their wounds and not be too burnt out to, you know, look after themselves and to, you know, create the hospitality experiences that they want to create. Uh, but yeah, I'll just, I'm just going to keep plugging away. Well, I'll start the year like I do every year with massive global domination plans. Only <laughs> 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 to find by February they're gone. <laughs> But no, I'm, I'm actually really excited. I think, you know, in seafood, we're at a sort of fairly massive crossroads. I, you know, the untold story right now is the incredible reduction in the quotas in wild catch fisheries around Australia and New Zealand. Um, I'm thinking that, you know, at some stage in the very near future, and, and 22 is just around the corner, that we're going to start to see everyone realise just how special in particular wild caught seafood is. Um, and that, I, you know, 22 will be a, a really catalytic year in that in that level of interpretation and appreciation. So, um, you know, hold on to your hats. I think it's about, we're about to see yet another exciting transformation of the seafood industry. And, and hopefully with that comes recognition and understanding of how special um, what, you know, what is caught and grown is, is in this country, so. Well, uh, the Deep in the Weeds Network has had an amazing year with a raft of new shows and all of you legends on them. Um, 2022 will be a big year for Deep in the Weeds Network. We've got a few plans in the works and um, we're looking forward to talking about it all over a drink tonight. Um, But thank you all, absolute legends. Um, it's bloody amazing what you guys do, and it's an honour to have you guys as part of what we do. And congratulations so, um, to, to you and Rob. Yeah, and back at Danny you. and Shante. Absolutely. It's like, it's an incredible, incredible team, and uh, bloody well done. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Anya. Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram 
at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.